Welcome everybody to today's Intelligent Property Investor Masterclass. Boy, we've had a turmoil over the last few years, haven't we? And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it means for property. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've had not only pandemic, we've had floods, we've had earthquakes around the world, we've got a war going on around on the other side of the world. What does all that mean for property? Because you know, a lot of a lot of the uncertainty around what's happening is affecting people. It's affecting people in a lot of different ways. And it causes stress. And guys, stress kills you. You know, it's the number one cause, it's the underlying cause of most death. So let's not get stressed. The more we know about something, the more uh, we can make decisions around it. And that's my point with this masterclass. It's about making you more intelligent in the property space. Um, and, uh, you know, by doing that and by understanding what's going on, you can make better decisions. When you make better decisions, you make more money. Now, if you're listening to me on any one of the platforms that you can't see my slides, like uh iTunes or on uh, Spotify, I really super encourage you to go across to my website, which is iloverealestate.tv and uh, get the full gambit. Subscribe to it, get the subscription happening so that you can get these coming out to you every single week. So what do I want to talk about this week? All right. The first thing is 3.7 trillion reasons why property prices are still going to rise. <laughs> wonder what that's about. Uh, why some sectors are seeing strong wage growth, but other sectors aren't, and it actually wages are falling in real terms. And why the RBA has actually taken a little bit of a breather, and uh, it's, it's really taken the pressure off increasing interest rates. And I'll talk about that. I want to talk about the difference between units and housing and what it means for you and what it means for growth rates, both from value perspective and also from a rental perspective. And what is in this epic war chest that everybody seems to be saving right now? Uh, I just want to talk about the volume of savings that's happening in households, everyday households right around Australia. So let's get into it. We'll start off with the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, breathes a sigh of relief. Why? Because the recent uh, data that came out from wages showed that it is softer. So uh, wage growth is actually softer than expected. Now, I want to talk a little bit more expansively about this. Wages over the last couple of years have not increased uh, or very little. So we've seen, we've seen wages creep up, but we've seen inflation actually above it. So in real dollars, people are earning less in value than they did a few years ago. Now, if you go back and listen to me a few uh, months ago, six months ago, I started to talk about how there's going to be pressure on wages. Now, that is now playing out. Um, it'll happen first in the uh, the areas where there's heavy union involvement, um, and we're seeing this with you know trains and uh, shipping and those sorts of areas. We'll see it in mining shortly, uh, where we're starting to see this this play out, and we'll start to get some wage growth happening. The other thing that that's really affecting this is the lack of labour. We simply don't have enough. Um, employees at the moment because we've stopped all of the um, the short-term visas coming in for work uh, and a lot of that was just tourist visas like particularly in the hospitality sector and in the tourism sector 
you know, uh, and then then you have all of the the, um, the labouring sector, like in regional areas, rural areas, where you've got agricultural labour. So uh, there's this massive, massive short, shortage of labour in some sectors. When we see, uh, you know, this this is the wage growth um, uh, has picked up a little bit, as I said, over the last uh, over the past year, but it still remains really low compared to where we've been previously. Now, if you look at this chart, this goes back to 2000, and if you look at that chart, and you can see how between 2000, basically, and uh, GFC, which was 2008, there's been a steady wage growth, up and down because of the different figures each quarter, but basically it's gone up. And then we had GFC, which dropped dramatically. Everybody went into free fall through to about 2010, picked up to 2012. But in real terms, what's happened is wages have been coming down. We haven't had significant wage increases since 2012. Um, it just started to pick up again at the uh, pre-pandemic, pre-2020. Uh, you know, 2020. So at the end of 2019, started to pick up a little bit. Then we had COVID and obviously crash. And we're starting to see that pick up. Now, the reason we're seeing it pick up, as I say, because we don't have that, um, you know, that influx of uh, of labour coming in um, on short-term visas and things like that. We are dramatically um, in over over demand and under supply at the moment in the wages sector as well as the pricing, as well as the property sector. So if we look at where um, the wage growth has actually been, Tassie is, has been a big one. And a lot of that, I think, has been because it cut itself off from the rest of Australia, for starters. So whoever was in Tassie, you know, that's the only workforce they had. Um, and uh, so, you know, if you, want, if you wanted an employee in Tassie, well, you had to pay for them. So they had a 3% growth. The rest kind of bump around that 2.3, 2.4. ACT is a little bit higher at 2.6. Um, and then you've got the bottom end. The average, of course, is 2.3. Uh, then you've got the uh, the bottom end of wage growth, which is WA, NT, and South Australia. And again, uh, you know, I think um, in those areas, it, you know, there was pretty close to full employment anyway. So that's probably playing out in those areas. Then you've got the private sector wages versus the public sector wages. This is again to be expected because what you're seeing here is um, the the public sector's wage increase is mainly due to the public sector actually getting wage increases. So they're, they're lifers. They're there for the term. They're lifers. They're going to, you know, just, just get their increase every year and whatever else. But when we talk about the private sector, the increase in the private sector is mainly because of the shortage. So if you want an employee, you've got to pay for it. And that's really where, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing that increase there. When we look at the different sectors, this is this goes in line with what I was saying before. <coughs> Excuse me. It's the accommodation and food services, which is all of the tourist uh, side of the the industry, which has increased the most. Most, and that's come up to a uh, a three point five percent increase you're seeing there, and the rest kind of fall into line thereafter, right down to uh, you know some of the the smaller, uh, the lesser increases down the bottom. And now it's a little bit hard to read because it's a small print, but it gives you an idea of uh, the effect of not having those those short-term visas open. Now, we see here wage growth hasn't actually kept up with inflation. And, you know, the underlying inflation is above where we are in real terms, <coughs> particularly through these last couple of years. Now, we're starting to turn that around a little bit, but it's nowhere near where we need to be. 
But that'll, that'll change over the next couple of years because what we're going to see over the next couple of years is a lot more industrial action around wages um, and that will feed into real inflation. Uh, because the reason I'm talking so much about wages, let me just take a back step. The reason I'm talking so much about wages is because that feeds into interest rates. Now, interest rates, um, are, the base rate is set by the Reserve Bank of Australia. It doesn't mean that banks can't increase their interest rates independently uh, from the Reserve Bank of Australia's official rate, but they're kind of frowned upon a little bit. So um, the Reserve Bank of Australia won't increase interest rates until it sees uh, inflation from internal internal inflation at uh, a fixed level of around 3%. <clears throat> now, I know you, you're saying, but we've got inflation at the moment because we've got petrol prices going up and we can't afford our, you know, to run our cars and all of these things. A lot of that is due to what's happening in the Ukraine, or it's totally due to what's happening in the Ukraine um, and Russia. <clears throat> now, Russia is a major primary producer of oil, obviously, but coal, coking coal um, and, uh, and thermal coal, uh, agricultural products and uh, natural gas. Now, all of those things we are as well. So we're kind of... a you know, a competitor to Russia. So when Russia's shut off from the rest of the world not being able to export, it actually affects us favourably. It means our balance of trade is going to get stronger. Our exports are going to get stronger. There's going to be more pressure on wages because of that, because we need the labour to increase production in these areas. Um, prices in the, in the commodity sector will go up, as we're seeing. Um, so with, with the exception of fuel... We are a producer of all the rest of the stuff that Russia is, is producing. So what it means is there's some more markets available to us. So I know it's horrible what's happening in the Ukraine and everything over there, and we don't want it to escalate to World War III, but the reality is from a pure financial perspective, it actually helps Australia. So sorry to say that for particularly any of you who have relatives in Ukraine. Um, and as I say, my heart goes out to everybody there. But for financially, you know, it's a hardcore reality. It does um, favourably affect Australia. So uh, that's, that's the overall picture and why I'm talking so much about wages right now. This is an interesting chart because what it shows is that those who get bonuses have actually had a wage increase, whereas those that are on just a fixed wage have not. So bonuses are mainly for the top end of town. <laughs> um, and a lot of the big end of town made a lot of money through, uh, through COVID. Uh, so they got a lot of bonuses. So that's pushing up the figures. And those who are in sales where, uh, you know, again, the pandemic has been very, very kind to them. And again, wages have gone up there because of those bonuses. Let's talk now about units and houses. Now, a lot of people misunderstand me thinking that I don't like units. It's kind of half true. Um, units, typically, I don't like units off the plan. I don't like uh, getting locked into to deals where you don't know what they're going to be. You don't know, uh, you know what the finishes are going to be. You don't know whether the build is going to go broke in the meantime, which is another problem that's looming at the moment. Uh, you don't know, uh, you, you, can't, you can't get any growth on the property other than the market. That's my issue. When you buy an older unit, perhaps, and you do it up, fantastic, happy with that. When you uh, build a block of units, 
fantastic. You're on the other side of the scale. You're making money out of the process. But when you're just buying something and sitting on it, hoping the market's going to move, that's not good enough. When you have land, as in housing, uh, then you can do more with it. Fact is, you can do more with it. You can knock it down. You can rebuild. You can subdivide, potentially. You can renovate. You can, you can add granny flats. You can do all sorts of things. That is why I favour housing. Now, there is also a stronger market in housing because when you look at uh, the difference between the growth rates in housing over the last 12 months versus units, there's a market difference. Have a look at this. Housing over the last 12 months went up by 24.8% nationally. Um, units went up by 14%. Uh, so there's a difference there of 10%, you know, and that's significant, and that's on a national basis. When we look at the capital cities, the margin, the percentage increase of um, houses above units is 78% higher in housing in Canberra. Brisbane, 65%. Now, look, let's just talk about those two cities to start with. Canberra, that's pretty obvious because it's landlocked. There's a premium on land. You know, it's only a fixed size and it's bubbling at the seams. Otherwise, it goes out into New South Wales. So you'd expect land to be of more of a premium, and that's what that's showing. When we talk Brisbane, look, in Queensland, we like open spaces. We like open living. We like indoor-outdoor living. We like all of that kind of stuff. So units are not as favourable in Queensland as they are in some of the other cities, particularly Sydney and Melbourne. Then you look at Sydney being six, nearly 60%, 59% higher for housing. A lot of that is due to the very high price of housing in premium areas, close to CBD hubs, like closer to Parramatta, closer to CBD, closer to North Shore. And that will elevate, closer to the beaches, that will significantly elevate the, uh, the, the housing market there because, again, land is totally the premium. And you can do things with it. You could knock it down and put an apartment building there, so long as the zoning approves it. Canberra, uh, sorry, uh, Adelaide, Adelaide's a little bit like Brisbane. Not that keen on units, okay with some townhouses, but not so much units. Melbourne is unit city, and uh, it's sitting there at 55% premium on housing to units. And a lot of that, uh, you know, the unit market in Melbourne is significantly oversupplied. It will change when, uh, as the students come back into the country, because a lot of them occupied uh, inner city units in Melbourne. Uh, so, you know, you're going to see a lot more of that stuff. Um, but it'll it'll start to settle. I think you'll start to see some increases there in the uh, you know in the in the uh, Melbourne market because it's starting to turn around. The you know the the um, students are starting to come back. All of those things. Perth they don't like units, and nationally we're sitting at thirty four percent so of a premium above uh, the unit market. So houses are thirty four percent higher nationally than units. But this is the biggest problem. This is the this is we just don't have enough supply. Even in the unit market, you can see there that dark blue line is where we are this year. There is simply not enough supply. We don't have enough listings now. A lot of that is actually due to uh, the the APRA who controlled the banks back in 2017 and limited the ability to be able to finance, and consequently, a lot of the big boys that produced units. 
um, pulled out of the market. And they only started again. They, they had a brief reprieve in late 2019. And then late 2020 is when they actually started to build again. So we've got this massive catch-up of supply issues. Now, that doesn't apply to some places like, you know, inner city Melbourne, although most of that stock will be taken up when we open up the international borders because when we open the international borders, they are going to go to Sydney and Melbourne predominantly. Although it does depend a little bit on what the policy is around migration. So I'm talking permanent migration now because if they go, well, we only want engineers and carpenters and miners, well, they're not going to go to Sydney and Melbourne, are they? Um, so it depends on what the criteria is for people coming in. I believe, because of everything that's happened, uh, they'll open it up, first of all, to doctors and nurses. When, where are they going to go? They'll all want to go to Sydney and Melbourne because that's what they do. It'll flow through to the other cities, but predominantly Sydney and Melbourne. This chart looks a little bit crazy, um, but it just shows you the up and down on a, uh, a quarterly basis there of um, you know, on, on pricing, but you can see how there's been a significant increase um, even in the unit market um, uh, in the capital cities. Melbourne is the exception at, uh, you know, 0.4 down. This is an easier chart to read, really. Uh, it shows you there um, Sydney barely going up by 0.1. Again, it's because of that lack of, you know, the lack of um, uh, students and uh, the desirability of housing as opposed to units. Melbourne went negative at 0.4, oversupply, that's what that chart says. Uh, Brisbane was at 1.4 up, Adelaide 1.4 up, Perth nothing. Now, the reason for that is because there wasn't sufficient data. So it's not saying anything about, about Perth, it just says we didn't have enough data to, uh, to sh show. Um, and then, uh, you know, Darwin 1.3, Canberra 1.3. Again, regional is a little bit hard to read in some cases. For instance, Queensland, Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast are considered regional. <laughs> I don't know why, but they are considered regional. So they get lumped in there, which obviously skews the, uh, you know, skews the readings significantly. But if you look over the other side over the 12 months, nationally we're running at 14.3%. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, you can see there where warehouses have gone up, units have gone up as well, but not as much as housing. Rents have finally, finally started to weaken a little bit. Rent increases have started to weaken. They're still going up, but they're not going up as much as they have in the past. Now, this will give a little bit of a, a good news uh, story for for people who need to rent. Um but it's, it's, it's a small story. There is still an undersupply of housing and uh, in the rental market and in the ownership market, the listings are not coming on there to the degree that they need to for housing or for units. And consequently, uh, it's going to have still a lot of upward pressure on, on, uh, on house prices. Let's go to the world. The world is awash with savings. In Australia, we have a, sorry, not in Australia, we have um, $3.7 trillion worth of savings. If you have a look at this, now, this just shows you how we were tracking along there with how much we were printing in money and how, you know, the, the deposits and currencies and everything were going on the world stage. That has increased across the world by 3 $3.7 trillion. Is that out of this world off the charts? It absolutely is. 
if you look at the Reserve Bank of Australia, you can see there how much the it's holding in assets. Because see, when it when we print money, what it means is that the balance sheet of our Reserve Bank of Australia goes up because it basically produces a piece of paper and sells it at a profit. Um, the grey area there is the domestic bonds. So most of that is being bought by the government effectively so that they've got money to pay out and push back into the economy. A bit of it has gone into uh, term funding facilities, which might be a bit of superannuation, might be a little bit of um, you know, international and other things there, but predominantly it's going to be domestic as well. So the major portion of this is, um, is, is sitting in cash in Australia. Now, I just want to talk about this a little bit more, and, and I don't want you to uh, to take me the wrong way in, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around and all the rest of it, but here's the facts. When you follow the money, you get the real story. Unfortunately, that's how it is. And the money story is this. Pre-pandemic, we had an exorbitant amount of debt all around the world, particularly America, but all the countries had a lot of debt. Um, a lot of that debt was to the Middle East and to China, but also internal debt and other things. So uh, there was some resistance, if you remember, when Trump wanted to increase its debt level uh, to, uh, you know, to keep the country afloat and pay more, more wages out and all the rest of it. Uh, but eventually it got through the parliament. We weren't at that stage, but we still have a lot of debt. So... What happens when a country just turns on the printing press and produces more money? Now, if one country does it, their, their currency, their, their value of their dollar goes down. You know, we see what's happened in, in Iraq when then there was the war there. Um, see what's happening now in Russia. Their dollar is worth nothing. So, but if one country just gets out there and starts printing, that's what happens internationally. Their dollar's worth nothing and the whole thing falls. But when the whole world prints money, what happens then? Let me just explain. Let's say you're a country and you have um, $1,000 worth of debt as a little tiny weeny country. <laughs> You've got $1,000 worth of debt just to give us some round figures. Um, and, uh, and you've got um, $200 in the bank. Just Or you might have $100 in the bank then your debt is significant. Your debt compared to your wealth or what you have is significant. But let's say the um, local bank t uh, turns on the printing presses and gives you $3,000 worth of, worth of money. So now your debt is $1,000, but you've got $3,000 worth of money. So your debt um, compared to your wealth is immaterial because it's worthless. So this whole printing of money, what it's meant is across the globe, those countries that had heavy levels of debt are better off. <laughs> you can't tell me there's not something behind that. So uh, our debt levels have gone down, but America particularly, their debt levels have significantly gone down compared to their wealth as a result of turning on the printing presses. They tried to do it um, with the uh, previous regime and, and without a reason. Pandemic came along and bingo, now there's a reason and uh, America is much better off as a result. So too is Australia because the debts that are there, even though debt levels have gone up, they're internal debts. They're not external debts and that's a big difference. When you compare us to other countries compared to our size, 
Um, we're up there with Japan, uh, New Zealand, Sweden, Canada. We're all very high compared to our size um, or a size of our economy. Um, places like the Eurozone, UK, US, they're all, you can see there, they've gone up significantly compared to their size. So we've benefited a lot out of having these, um, you know, the, the, the printing presses turned on um, and our debt levels are very, very low. And it, it's, it's global. It's not just one country. It's global. This chart here, I put it in because it shows the UK data and it goes back to the 1700s. And you can see there, um, there have been three major printing episodes. The, the first one there back in the, lat the earlier part of the 1700s, I can't remember what happened then. I'm going to have to go back and into my history books and see what actually happened economically as to why they turned on the printing presses. It would have been a war or a pandemic, I can tell you, but it might have been the plague or something, I don't know. Um, but the earlier ones there in the uh, early part of the 2000s, you can see World War I, World War II very, very clearly there. Uh, and when we turned on the printing presses there, we go through to uh, what we did now. I mean, just, just look at it. We're practically vertically up. We've printed more money. Uh, or this is, the U this is the UK, but it's the same across the world. Uh, we've printed more money than that we ever have. And I think that chart of the, uh, the Bank of England really, really shows that. And lockdowns give us more money. Lockdowns means we save more money. So um, when things got tough with GFC, everybody buckled in, stopped spending, and they, they paid off their credit cards, paid down their mortgages, and put money into the, into the property market. The same thing happened when we have lockdowns in uh, the initial lockdown that we had, and then we had the Melbourne lockdown, then we had the last round of lockdowns. Savings go up. And that's really showing here by a CBA chart that shows how much we've saved in deposits over the last couple of years and how much we're putting into our offset accounts over the last couple of years. So we're really, truly in a very strong savings position. Household deposits, it's interesting when you look at the different generations, the lowest um, savings group over this period pre, you know, through the pandemic is the older people and the boomers. Now, the reason for that is most of the boomers are not working anymore. Um, and of course, the olders are not, oldies are not either. So they benefited the least from what's happened with COVID. Then you had the Gen Xs, the Millennials and the Gen Zs. Look at the Gen Zs. The reasons their household deposits have gone up significantly is because they're all living at home. So they're working and saving money. And that's really what that chart is, is showing massively. This is a good chart just to show how we're tracking because you can see there where the pandemic started, pretty clear in that chart. But if you continue on that tracking line that we were on and just continue that tracking on, what you'll see is we are still from a spending perspective higher than we would have been if we hadn't had COVID-19. So, you know, we're seeing that we've got this, this $3.7 trillion out there, uh, which is continuing to push the housing market and will continue to do for, so for some time. That's the story. I can't tell you an affordability story, but I can tell you a wealth story. I, for my thought for the week, it is if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. So if you're sitting there and you're wanting something different, if you want a better house, you want a better car, you want to take better holidays, you want to earn more money, you want to be uh, you know, financially free, you don't want to work anymore, you want to retire, whatever, 
You've got to start doing things differently. Because if you're doing everything right and you knew everything you needed to know, guess what? You'd already be in that position. So if you're not, it means there's more to learn, there's more to know, there's more to implement. Because if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. So that's my thought for the week. So in line with that, your next step now is to book a, an appointment with one of my advisors. They are 60 minutes long. They are free. You need to go to iloverealestate.tv forward slash questions forward slash and make one of those appointments. Go armed with what you want. Go armed with where your goals, dreams, aspirations are so that you can really start to, to, to know where you're at and know what the action steps are that you need to take in order to achieve that, that different lifestyle, that different, that different set of goals, whatever it is. Because if it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. So jump on the phone, jump on the internet, iloverealestate.tv forward slash questions forward slash, they're free, let's see how we can help you. So that's it for me for this week. That's my Intelligent Property Investor Masterclass. I hope you enjoyed it and I'll be back again next week to talk to you then. Bye now.